and welcome everybody to Urban Green Live. I'm your host, John Mandyke, the CEO of Urban Green Council. This is a new program series where I'll be interviewing global experts to better understand how we get to a zero carbon future. And you get to participate too with live Q&A that we'll have in just a bit. Now, today is a really, really big day for New York City because today is the day that the new energy code takes effect. So on day one of the new energy code, my guest is Gina Bokra. She's the chief sustainability officer for the New York City Department of Buildings, and she has the responsibility to enforce the new code. So I can't think of a better person to join us for this really important topic. Her office also oversees the implementation of Local Law 97, which, as you know, is the new carbon emissions law for buildings. So we certainly have a lot to talk about with Gina. If you design, build, lease, own, or operate a building in New York City, you're going to want to hear what Gina has to say. So let's br bring Gina on the show. Gina, welcome to Urban Green Live. Thank you, John. It's really nice to be here today. We're, we're thrilled that you could spend a, a few minutes uh, with us and our audience on what is surely a, a really busy day for you, um, Gina. Um, before we start talking about the energy code, um, I'd like to know a little bit about what's going on with construction in New York right now. And you certainly have your finger on that pulse um, uh, and more than most people. Um, how do you see the construction market right now from, from where you sit in your office at the Department of Buildings? Well, there's still certainly a lot going on. Um, many people may know that the, the governor has um, issued a list of certain construction that is essential. And so there are many uh, construction workers out there that are still busy. Um, they're still building, um, hopefully in the safest manner that they can. And um, at Department of Buildings, we are all still very busy. We are still supporting uh, the industry to make sure that they can do what they need to do. Uh, along with that, we also have uh, our inspectors going out to make sure that sites that are not essential are not operating. Um, but we are here to support everyone as uh, this virus uh, gets better and we can move the construction industry back into um, uh, more operations. We've been reviewing applications just like we always do so that they're they're ready to go when uh, when it's safe. So there's uh, resources that are on our website. Um, if anybody goes to the Department of Buildings website, you can see uh, all of the, the updates on activity that can happen while uh, New York State is on pause. Uh, so that information is there at your fingertips and, and uh, we are ready to help if anybody has questions. What's happening with the uh, with the application or the or the the permit levels in the last few weeks? Are they going up or are they going down? Can you give us a flavor for that? Uh, for new buildings, it certainly went down. Um, you know, despite the fact that we are there and we are reviewing applications so that they can be ready uh, when when construction picks up again. But um, we definitely saw a, a big uh, uptick in applications in the last week. It. it um, you know, it was about four times what we saw the week before as people are trying to to get in their their projects under the 2016 energy code. So you had that opportunity until midnight of last night. And um, we, we saw a lot of projects that came through the door. So 
uh, we look forward to reviewing the first project under the 2020 code um, soon. Great. So let's talk about the code. And um, I'm going to start at the highest level, Gina. Tell us, why do we have an energy code in the first place? I, well, there are a couple of different uh, reasons, and you should, you know, take into consideration the background that we have had energy codes in the United States since the, the late 1980s, or, or sorry, um, late 1970s. Uh, the, the first codes really came out of the um, energy crisis in the, in the 70s, um, and those were developed first for commercial buildings, and then um, reached into the residential market very shortly after that. Um, by the late 80s, we had an ASHRAE 90.1 standard that was adopted by most states, and um, that is mandated by federal law that that update has to happen at least every three years. So there's a federal standard that is set, and then the states have to follow that standard. So they're mandated to make sure that they have an energy code enforced that's equivalent to the, the national model code. So then we get to what happens at the state and the state has the, the energy law of the state of New York, which says in the state of New York, any municipality can have their own energy code. And uh, if you have your own energy code at the municipal level, it must be more stringent than what the state has. And then in 2009, our city council and uh, Mayor Bloomberg felt it was appropriate to have our own energy code in New York City. So we are, are very shortly coming up on 10 years of a New York City energy code in July of this year. And so Local Law 85 of 2009 um, mandated that we have our own code that we maintain in New York City, and that means it has to be more stringent than the state's. But then uh, in 2018, council decided to add requirements to that and said uh, with local law 32 of 2018 that we have to have a code that is much more stringent than the states. And so for this code cycle specifically, local law 32 says that our code has to um, come into alignment with the NYSERDA stretch code. Um, that was published last year. So that code takes us about 13% more energy savings than what the, the state has going into effect today. And so what triggers compliance to the code, uh, Gina? Does it cover all construction, all new construction, all renovation? It does. Yeah, and so that was a motivation for Local Law 85 of 2009, was that back at that time, many alteration projects slipped through the cracks. They didn't hit the, the triggers that required an energy code compliance, and many of them had no regulation at all that they were subject to other than uh, federal guidelines on equipment. Since Local Law 85, we have an energy code that applies to all new construction and all alterations. Um, and when it comes to an alteration, it typically only applies to the scope of work that you are doing in your project. So it's not retroactive in most ways, but um, applies to any upgrade that you're making. So, so anything new that you're putting into a building, any alteration that you're making has to comply with the code. Now, we know that um, this code is much more strict than the last one. 
Um, and then as we were just discussing, there's even stretch provisions uh, beyond that New York City adopted. So what are some of the notable changes? Like what, what are people gonna notice the most when they take a look at this new code? Um, our new code has a lot of changes that affect the envelope. So that's an area where we're really excited about the changes that have, have been made. Um, some of them are um, related to uh, envelope performance for windows, uh, especially in the commercial part of the code. Our committees uh, went beyond the stretch code and added new requirements for better windows. Uh, another area where uh, the applicants will see changes is that we are now going to require uh, a lot more attention to thermal bridging in the envelope which is something the code hasn't done very well in the past. Um, it's, it's in there, so it's not, it's not accurate to say that we've ignored it. Um, but all commercial and residential applications will now have to identify certain thermal bridges in their design. And we're hopeful that if you have to call it out in your project, that maybe you'll pay a little bit more attention to how it's detailed um, maybe you can find a way to remediate it. Um, some of our standard approaches in the past we know don't work very well. Um, and those thermal bridges really have a big impact on the overall performance of the envelope. So for now, um, we're looking at very specific ones. So for the commercial code, uh, all thermal bridges at parapets and balconies must be remediated. You don't have a choice. It's it's uh, required. So either you have to have a thermal break or you have to wrap the element in continuous insulation. So those are mandatory for, um, or I should say they're prescriptive for the commercial code. And uh, then for both residential and commercial, you do have to document the other thermal bridges that we require across the envelope. Now this is intentionally setting up the industry to have to deal with them in the future. And we had a great question at one presentation. A gentleman said, well, why are you making us call them out and list them, but you're not making us do anything about them? And the reason for that is that our applicants rely on uh, tools like ResCheck and ComCheck to demonstrate compliance. And those tools are not there yet they don't deal with thermal bridging very well and we couldn't rely on the federal government to make changes to those tools to catch up to our code. So the great news is that NYSERDA has worked with us and has worked with PNNL so that we have uh, versions of ComCheck and ResCheck is coming out this week that are specific for New York City and the 2020 code. But we couldn't give them enough time to figure out a way to deal with all of the thermal bridging that happens in the envelope in a tool like ResCheck and ComCheck. Hopefully in the next two years, we'll figure out ways that we can do that so that when we start mandating that we, we account for the performance of, of those weak, weak areas of the envelope, that the, the tools that we rely on will be able to accommodate that. But that's another area where we're really excited to see some change. Um, another area that I just wanna make everyone aware of is uh, buildings that are 25,000 square feet and greater that, that do an energy model. 
will be subject to something called an envelope backstop. And historically in the code, if you do a model, you can trade performance off between elements of the building with very few limits. Now, in reality, the federal government, set, they set efficiency limits for equipment. So you can't use equipment that is less efficient than what the, the federal government allows. And we also have uh, federal guidelines that restrict the performance of uh, lamps, or at least for now we do. Um, so lighting, in a sense, can't be worse than what the federal government allows the lamp to be, and the HVAC equipment can't be less efficient than what the federal government allows, but the envelope had no limits. You could trade off the performance of the envelope as if it were Swiss cheese. And so now we have implemented an envelope backstop that limits how much of the envelope performance can be traded off for other performance in the building. And we're really excited about that because effectively it addresses the, the problem that we've seen of being able to design very poor performing envelopes and make up that performance with HVAC equipment or lighting. And a lot of that has been reliant on the efficiencies that we can get out of lighting. But this code also addresses that. And in addition to some of the, the lighting requirements that we have in New York City about on, on controls, the stretch code for, for New York that NYSERDA has developed relies on the lighting efficiency um, requirements for standard 189, which you know is um, essentially a codification of the LEED standard. So those are the most restrictive lighting power um, density requirements of, of any model code or above code program that is out there. And now those establish the efficiency requirements of the New York City Energy Code. So, so we have really big improvements in lighting um, and a lot of attention to, to what's happening on the envelope. Um, that backstop related to the um, envelope, Gina, is that, I, I know there are many uh, provisions of this new code that are unique uh, to New York City. Um, you know, only a handful of cities in the country have an energy code as strict as, as we do. Um, is that backstop unique to New York? Um, and are there other provisions that New York has adopted that don't exist anywhere else? Um, it is not unique to New York because we discussed that provision and uh, with with the uh, committee that developed the New York um, stretch code. And so NYSERDA uh, did a little bit of um, research, had to um, support the code uh, or to support that provision and tested it out. And they adopted that provision into the stretch code. So that actually made it easier for us to adopt it in New York City because we're not the only ones that are doing it. Uh, so we, the, the, anybody that adopts the stretch code across New York State will have the uh, the option of also taking on that ba envelope backstop. And that being said, um, ASHRAE is paying attention and uh, we have our um, energy code director, um, Emily Hoffman, um, involved in ASHRAE committees, and they um, may very well take the envelope backstop idea and incorporate it into ASHRAE. 
So then that would set the set the pace of the national model code as well. But um, as far as unique provisions go, um, we have only a few things in the code that are really unique to New York, and they're um, not as big moves as as um, uh, as we would like. But we're working on them. So you know, uh, requiring envelope. Um, uh, testing uh, as far as air leakage and commercial buildings, there are still not very many places that require that. But in New York City, we've had it in place since the 2016 code. And now we've expanded it in the 2020. So it, the threshold now starts at 10,000 square feet instead of 25,000. And we're really excited about that diagnostic tool being used in commercial buildings. We know it's really important so you hinted at this before, but we know that this code is um, a prescriptive code. There's a checklist um, to follow right now. Mm -hmm. um, are we moving to a performance approach where, you know, we design to a predicted energy use instead of a checklist? And if we are, you know, what does the future look like? When do you think we're going to get there? Well, Local Law 32 that I mentioned earlier uh, required that we align with the stretch code for this code cycle. Um, it requires that if there is a stretch code uh, in New York for 2022, um, which there most likely will be, NYSERDA has said that they will, will develop that code. We also have to have that alignment with the stretch code in 2022, which, you know, emphasizing 2022 is only two years away. Uh, the 2020 code was um, a little behind schedule. Um, so we anticipate this will happen again fairly shortly. But then in 2025, Local Law 32 mandates that we set an absolute limit on energy performance in buildings that is performance-based. Um, and we, we tend to, to um, refer to it as a prediction-based code rather than performance-based code. And we don't call it an outcome-based code. Uh, the reason we say prediction is that it is still based on a model, and we all know that buildings don't always behave like they are modeled. In fact, it's probably the opposite. They, they just don't behave the way that we model them because we can't predict how people are going to behave in them. So we will have a prediction-based code in 2025 for buildings that are 25,000 square feet and greater, which, again, aligns with local on 97 and uh, many of the other thresholds that we've set in the code. So it is coming, um, and there's a lot of work that the city has to do. Uh, the first big move that we need to look at is what are the metrics that we're going to use to establish performance and in the predictions that we're asking everyone to make about their buildings. So that, um, you know, typically when you think about building performance, a lot of people talk about energy use intensity and EUI is, is a pretty common uh, metric, uh, but we don't think that it works very well sometimes. And so it may end up being a carbon-based metric. So the city needs to take our time, um, study what metrics make the most sense. And I think one other um, question that we keep having is, is the model the only way we can get there? Because modeling is um, expensive. Um, and for a lot of buildings in New York City, we may be spending a lot of money on models that tell us the same thing over and over and over again. 
So we do want to see if there are other ways that are maybe more simplified than a whole building energy model that get us to a prediction on how a building might behave in the future and, and uh, in, increases the likelihood that it's a low carbon, high performance building. Great. I'll remind the audience that uh, in a little bit, we're going to open up for uh, audience Q&A. So make sure you send uh, those questions in, uh, in in the chat box. Um, Gina, we, we are seeing tremendous interest in this code. As you know, Urban Green offers online courses for people to do a deep dive um, into this code. I think we've, we've produced about 40 in the last uh, month alone. Every time we put one on the web, it, it fills up in a matter of hours. Are you seeing the same level of interest on your end with, you know, the, the appetite to understand and put this code into action? Absolutely. Uh, we definitely have sold out the events that we've done since January, and we don't have the bandwidth to do very many. Um, as much as we really enjoy getting out and talking to people um, about uh, what their challenges are and meeting the code, uh, we definitely have seen a lot more questions coming in um, to our, our um, email address that uh, you can use to send questions to our team. And uh, that's why we're there. So we want to help everybody and, and are you know, looking forward to working through issues that they might have on a project. Um, anything from a generalized question about the code to um, a more specific question about a, a project um, are, you know, you're welcome to send those questions to us at, at the department. That's why we're there. And we have, um, you know, I'm sure seen the same kind of interest that you're seeing. And we're really grateful that Urban Green is doing those courses to help everybody come up to speed. Thanks. You mentioned local law 97 and I, we have a, a time for a few more questions before we turn it over to the audience. I want to spend time on this important topic. Um, how does this energy code relate to local law 97? Obviously the energy code by design is energy. Local law 97 is carbon. How do the two talk to each other? Um, it's a great question. And I know a lot of people have been asking that question. I, I think a lot of people are looking for a really simple kind of guarantee that if they design a building under this code, they want to be certain it's going to meet the requirements of Local on 97 and help them reach their carbon limit um, without any trouble. Um, depending on the occupancy of the building, that may or may not be the case. Uh, you have to recall that um, the Local Law 97 uh, is, you know, something that happened after law, Local Law 32. Um, it happened after much of the work on uh, the stretch code had already started. Um, the stretch code was nearly finished um, by the time Local Law 97 had passed. And we are now catching up. Now, I think for many building types, if you meet the 2020 code, you're well on your way to having a very efficient building that won't have too much difficulty meeting local on 97, but it is very dependent on the occupancy of the building and how it's used. So the code really specifies uh, performance at a point in time with average occupancies and um, doesn't necessarily, again, represent what might happen in the building after it's being used. 
So there, there's certainly a gap that we need to close and come into better alignment with what we're trying to achieve with Local on 97 and all of the new buildings that are out there that are 25,000 square feet and greater need to be looking at their carbon performance and designing to Local on 97, not just designing to the energy code. So um, I've been getting um, a lot of questions in the last few weeks um, about Local Law 97. And the number one question I get asked is, given what's going on in the market right now, is Local Law 97 going to be delayed? Is that 2024 date going to get pushed out for the first compliance period? So I don't mean to put you on the spot, but does the department have a position on that? And do you even have the authority to entertain a delay or is that really a city council decision? That is a city council decision. So you're not putting me on the spot. Um, our charge is to enforce the law and Local Law 97 is law and we have to enforce it as written. If council or the mayor see fit to delay the law, they'll, they'll do so and we will follow their lead. Um, that being said, um, the urgency of climate change hasn't been delayed by COVID-19. Um, it doesn't matter to, to climate change that all of this is happening to us right now. Um, we still have to prepare for that crisis. And so we will, we will follow the lead of council and the mayor on this. Um, and, uh, you know, right now, none of us know how all of this will turn out. So, at, at this time, there there's no delay. So given that, where are we? Where is your department right now in the implementation of Local Law 97? Like, what are some of the big decisions that are going to be coming forward next? Uh, there, there are a few things going on right now that I'm uh, delighted to share. Uh, we have an advisory board that's mandated by the law that they got started in December of, of last year. And they've had a few meetings um, and in the, the meetings that they have had, their primary focus is the um, establishment of working groups to tackle a number of issues in the law that are um, they're still open. Um, and I think there was a lot of wisdom in council's approach there that there's a lot of debate that still needs to happen, but we needed the law to happen. Uh, so they they wrote the law in the way that they could to get it passed and to make it law. And now we have some homework to do and to figure out all of these other little details that they, they couldn't figure out ahead of time. And, and you'll see this is an echo of what's happening at the state too. Um, so with the Climate and Community Protection Act, it's sort of the same thing. They have a, uh, a group of individuals and experts that are getting together to try and work out some of those details. Uh, so there's some good alignment there. Um, and our focus, as I said, is, have, has been on establishing the working groups to, to tackle those open issues in the law. And we owe a report to city council and the mayor um, at the end of 2022. So we anticipate getting those working groups going very soon. We um, had a, a period of nominations we're um, in the process of vetting all of those new working group members right now and bringing them into their their uh, um, committees and getting their work started. So we've mapped out um, all of the issues that we need to tackle from the law. 
and I'm sure uh, they will come up with more. <laughs> um, so, and then Caitlin, I'm going to ask one last question, um, then we'll turn it over to the audience. So, uh, Gina, we've started a tradition um, on this show. Um, this show is about the zero carbon future. Um, so I'm, I'm been asking my first guest, you're my second guest. I plan to ask all my guests this, this final question. Um, because this program is a uh, show about this, uh, how we get to a zero carbon future, my question for you to Gina Brokera is, how do we get to zero carbon? As I was saying, buildings are definitely the problem in New York City. Um, we have a lot of work. So I think um, if you work in the climate change uh, arena, uh, you can very quickly become overwhelmed and maybe a bit discouraged. But I think we have in New York City some really great examples of what has worked. And I think we also have most of the technology that we need to tackle the, the problems that we have in reducing energy performance in the building stock that we, we are dealing with. So many of the solutions that we need to put in place are already there. And I think that that um, gives us a real good recipe for success. And we have to figure out how to make that uh, obtainable for all of the owners that are out there. And that's, you know, probably our bigger challenge, um, especially now with COVID-19. Um, we will find ways to help owners do what they need to do. And so that's our role at the department is figuring out how to help owners um, accomplish these goals and make the changes that they need to make to their buildings. But at least we know what changes they need to make. And most of the most of the solutions and the technologies that we need to do that, we have them. So we're not at least looking for the solution. I think we we know most of it. And there are really great resources like Urban Green and, and others out there to help owners on an individual basis find their way through that. Great. Thanks, Gina. Well, we have about 150 people in our audience today, and I know they have a lot of questions. So, Caitlin, I'll, I'll turn it over to you to uh, run through the audience uh, Q&A, please. Sure. So the first question I have here is from Ethica. She said, thank you for taking the time to speak with us, Gina. Are there any parallel efforts being done by any other New York City agencies in order to make it more streamlined for buildings to comply with building sustainable features like solar in order to comply with Local Law 97? That's a great question. Um, I'm always happy to give a shout out to the partners that we have across the city. And one thing about Local Law 97 that a lot of people um, have misinterpreted is that the, the covered buildings list excludes city buildings. So um, that's that's unfortunately been misunderstood to mean that city buildings are not um, governed by Local Law 97, but they are. In fact, the goal for city buildings is more aggressive. And then by 2030, they have to reach a 50% reduction in carbon as opposed to the, the private sector, which has to reach only a 40% reduction in carbon by 2030. So there are um, really great efforts happening at um, the Department of Citywide Administrative Services. They have already achieved about a 30% reduction in their carbon for city-owned buildings, which is really, really impressive. And the reason they're doing that is to prime the market. So they want to have more proof of concept, test out some of these other technologies and strategies that aren't necessarily as proven as we'd like to see them, 
and um, really paved the way for the private sector to, to follow their lead. So I, I'm happy to give a shout out to, to DCAS and recognize um, all of their hard work. I know that um, SCA, NYCHA, DDC, they are all working really, really hard to meet the other mandates that affect energy performance in their buildings. And, and all of that is intended to set examples for the private sector to show you um, how to get there. Great. The next question we have is, what are the most misunderstood aspects of the code? Mm, misunderstood aspects of the code. <laughs> I think that's one area that we are trying to work on is um, how to, to accurately calculate the thermal performance of different parts of the envelope. And for example, one area that has been a problem in the past is that there isn't a strong understanding of how to deal with spandrels. And so uh, in this new code, we actually have added a table of default spandrel uh, U-factors that we borrowed from uh, Title 24 in California. And now that um, information is there in the code if you want to use it you can use those uh, default U factors and then you don't have to do your own calculations. But if you wanna do better than that, you are certainly welcome to do your own calculations, do a therm model and show us your work. And uh, hopefully uh, that just leads to better envelope performance across the city. But that, that has certainly been an area of, um, of misunderstanding how to properly derate um, you know, a, a clear field uh, U-value for a wall assembly and how to take into account uh, thermal bridging within a wall assembly, um, those kinds of things we've been working on for a while with applicants. And now we've moved a little closer to having that information in the code instead of just dealing with, uh, with it on a project-by-project -project basis. Great. This question is from Stuart. What are the other provisions that are unique to New York? Where can I read more about that? <laughs> Um, off the top of my head, Stuart, one that we have been really proud of is that uh, if you have something like a through-the-wall um, HVAC unit in New York City, you have to discount your wall performance based on the number of holes that you put all over your wall. Um, so there's a default U factor for a piece of, of um, mechanical equipment. Um, and that is unique to the New York City code as far as we know. Uh, we developed that um, with the help of Urban Green and put that into the code. I'm not sure if anyone else has adopted it. Uh, I think the stretch code picked it up, uh, but that's an example of something that is unique to New York. Uh, again, there are not very many municipalities that have a commercial air leakage testing requirement in their code. That's something also unique that, uh, you know, we, as far as I know, Seattle has that requirement, but not very many other places. But we've also dropped the threshold for that requirement down to buildings that are 10,000 square feet. Um, so I, I give you those two examples, and then maybe we can go back and do our homework and find a couple others. Uh, that and then I'll have a better idea next time. But <laughs> we spend more of our time helping uh, people with their their code issues on a project by project basis than um, focusing on on uh, 
what we're doing that's unique. <laughs> Thank you. I have two related questions here about energy modeling. One is, will energy modeling for existing buildings also be mandatorily similar to new buildings? And the second question is, in an effort to move toward a performance-based code, has the DOB identified ways in which they can expedite the review of initial and submissions using an energy model for compliance? Good questions. Okay, so the first one is, will we require energy modeling as mandatory on existing buildings? Um, not that I can see at this point, um, but it may be a very useful tool for any owner that is working to achieve Local Law 97 compliance. So it is very useful. I think the challenge is that when you're building a new building, you know exactly what the walls are supposed to be built out of. When you're dealing with an existing building, you, there's a lot of guesswork there. Um, so uh, it, it is a really useful tool and um, I'm sure some owners are looking into how they can use it to um, improve their chances of, uh, of complying with Local on 97 and also how they're making decisions about what to do next. Um, and then the second question, um, are we working on making energy modeling uh, uh, something that gets reviewed faster by the Department of Buildings? Yes, we are, because it takes us an enormous amount of time uh, to review an energy model. There are hundreds upon hundreds of inputs that can go into a model, um, and only a portion of them are regulated in the guidelines of the code on, on how to submit. Um, but that's exactly why um, in the 2014 code, we eliminated the IECC option on energy modeling. Um, that was not a very robust, robust set of modeling guidelines. Uh, so we went with ASHRAE's guidelines only. In addition to that, we're working with other jurisdictions and a national um, effort to streamline some of the input and output. And we're hopeful that uh, after that effort, we will see the um, modeling software uh, companies come into some alignment and standardization of their output reports. That would also help us in reviewing models faster. And then the third thing what we may do is, uh, despite the fact that um, modeling is a tool that can help owners make decisions, if you're using it for compliance, then we would like to see a model for compliance. And an easier way to align that review process, or uh, sorry, streamline that review process would be to set some more standardization in the input that users are um, are using to model their compliance model. Uh, and, and so that makes the information more about compliance and less useful to the owner when it comes to some of the decisions that they're making. But if it streamlines the review process, it may be worth it. So we are also looking into streamlining some of the model inputs standardizing some of the schedules. And this is a model that um, is in use in some jurisdictions in Europe. So it could save some time in the review process, but then you may not have your model be as um, insightful when you're making decisions about design or operations. 
So it's, again, it's a tool and we're talking about what it's being used for. So if it's just for compliance, there are things that we could do to help that back and forth process um, take less time. Hey, Gina, let me jump in with just a follow up on that. Um, so it's a great question on energy modeling, but I think it, it begs an even broader question is, will future codes be based on energy or are they going to be based on carbon? That's a good question. And that's another change that we've made, John, is that we are, um, you know, certainly trying to uh, get away from the single metric of energy cost um, because we know that that doesn't serve us well for some of our carbon goals. And so with this new code and the nicer to stretch code, we are also allowing source energy as the metric for our model. Uh, so that's a big step in, in the right direction to support projects that are looking, you know, at electrification for their building and may not be able to make that work if you're looking just at energy cost as the metric for performance. But yes, I think we have to move in the direction of a carbon uh, metric for building performance uh, because that's what really matters to us. And we, you know, need to be thinking about it, you know, very broadly, maybe not just operational carbon, but em embodied carbon. And so we have a lot of work to get there. Uh, there's, um, you know, and especially when you look at embodied carbon, not a lot of agreement on how those metrics work, not a lot of great sources that are out there. We still have some of that um, challenge just with operational carbon as well. Um, time of day valuation and, and what's really happening at a, at a particular moment of the day uh, really complicates those calculations quickly. But um, we'll, you know, we'll work our way through it. And uh, so it's, yes, I think we're, we're going to be getting away from just energy performance and, and start looking at it uh, more holistically. This question is from Silvera. How was the 95 foot height identified for the fenestration requirement? You values and more stringent below 95 feet. Thanks. Yeah, the, the 95 feet value um, is from other parts of the code and relates to what those structural requirements are for fenestration um, up above that elevation. So we we tend to see um, you know, other criteria creep into the picture and that makes it harder to just look for high uh, performance from a thermal perspective. So we have to defer a little bit and work with those other requirements above 95 feet. So it's it has come from other parts of the building code. All right, this next question is from Sarah. When will the local law 93 building grade be rolled out? Uh, that is rolling out later this year. The building grade, um, if people are not familiar with it, uh, is an extension of the benchmarking requirements for a building. So uh, that law, I'm going to forget now, when it initially passed, 93 just adjusted the schedule. But uh, based on the benchmarking performance for last year's um, annual year, uh, which owners typically report by May 1st, but that's an area where we did make some modifications because of COVID-19. And you can now report up to August 1st of this year. 
uh, owners will have to take that score that they get from benchmarking. It will be translated into a grade. And then sometime in October, you will get your grade and have to post it uh, in your building. So those, those uh, letter grade posts should be um, popping up in buildings near you coming up October this year. Gina, maybe just another follow-up there, because people have been asking me this question too, is, um, you know, a lot of buildings aren't occupied right now in the commercial space, um, and so they're not using as much energy. Um, is that windfall going into the calculation of the grade, meaning when we get to a year from now, um, are all the grades really going to be going up in New York because there was a, um, a certain amount of artificial um, uh, decline of energy that you know we think will come back. Uh, we haven't we haven't worked through that with EPA yet. Um, of course, everybody reports through uh, portfolio manager, and I don't know if portfolio manager is going to make any adjustments. But it's a great question, and and we'll have to have those discussions with them. All right, our next question is from Lou. How will fuel cells or CHP systems be addressed? Uh, that's a great question, Lou, because um, uh, CHP systems certainly uh, combust fuel on site. And then fuel cells, um, I'm not as familiar with the technology, but I, my understanding is they don't combust. So then, you know, I guess the question becomes how far down are we taking that carbon footprint into account when we're looking at something like a fuel cell. Uh, there are some uh, modifications that we've made and how they are accounted for in your energy code compliance, which has mostly been um, an enforcement uh, policy over the last few years. But uh, you can only take account for the um, the energy savings that that you're offsetting uh, with the use of a, um, a CHP system, so you you don't get to double dip. And that was clarified by ASHRAE and then clarified by the City of New York, but is now also clarified in the language of the 2020 code. Uh, but when it comes to Local Law 97, uh, those are the types of questions that the advisory board is tasked with answering. How do we account for these on-site distributed energy resources? And, uh, you know, with those two are really great examples of some of the technologies that we have to come up with the rules on, on how, you, how you're um, accounting for those carbon savings. All right, our next question here is from Sarah about conditioning requirements. We'd like some clarification on the following from Steve for 0822. It seems that the system building equipment serving the alterations base is now considered for the conditioning requirements to be threshold. Can you please clarify the existing equipment? Doesn't the alteration space also require commissioning or just the newly installed equipment within the alteration space that is downstream of said equipment? That's a great question. Yes, the threshold changed um, and the threshold is now looking at the uh, capacity of an area, uh, a space that is served. So it's not just based on the, the um, equipment that you're installing, but that's the threshold. 
So the threshold uh, could be based on existing equipment that is there already, but that existing equipment does not have to be commissioned. Only the new equipment that you're installing is commissioned. So what we're trying to do there is there are often um, alterations in say commercial spaces where you may have a number of BAV boxes or other equipment, uh, terminal equipment that was never caught before. And you could be replacing dozens of them or hundreds of them and not be replacing the equipment at the, at the head end of the system. So now when that happens, you have to be commissioning all of that new equipment that's being installed, even if you're uh, not replacing the uh, equipment that generates the heating or cooling. Thank you. The next question we have here is from George. We've been told that the local law 92 and 94 interpretations are left up to individual plan reviewers. Is this the case or is there a single city agency or party to whom we can direct technical questions as to ensure consistency across applications? <laughs> Thanks, George. Um, yes, we have, um, we have a number of plan examiners and we can't have just one person responsible for all buildings in the United or in, across the entire city. So all of those plan examiners have been trained um, and they all should be looking at an application related to Local Law 92 and 94, which are the, the solar and green roof requirements. They should be looking at it the same. Um, however, uh, because they are people and uh, they have varying degrees of experience, it's possible that they may not be exactly consistent all the time. And if that happens, you are always welcome to appeal the decision of a plan examiner to their chief. And if you still disagree with how they're interpreting something, you can always go to tech affairs at Department of Buildings and appeal there. Um, so there is not a single source, one person who is reviewing all local on 92, 94 um, uh, applications in the city. Uh, they, I, I think we would have to lock them in a room and feed them bread and water and have them awake 24 hours a day if we were trying to do that. <laughs> um, so you, you can always appeal to the chief or to a borough commissioner or to technical affairs if you think that your plan examiner is uh, not um, interpreting something uh, the way that they should be. This question is, since envelope performance is a huge priority in the 2020 New York City Energy Code, are dynamic glazing products given any incentives or additional advantage for using since better U-values and higher window-to-wall ratio can be achieved while still meeting code in the energy balance? That's a great question. Um, dynamic glazing has actually been um, acknowledged in the code since the 2016 version. So those provisions um, for dynamic glazing haven't changed. Uh, there's a process for a calculation for how you take um, that performance into account. Uh, so you're you know, encouraged and welcome to use that technology. Great, and I'm gonna do one final question here and then turn it back over to John. Uh, this is from Steve. What programs of education or retraining are available to licensed design professionals whose experience is in other fields of expertise, but who are interested in being involved in energy code compliance and or enforcement? 
Um, there are a lot of programs out there and many of the partners across the city are delivering really great ones. Um, so there, you know, have certainly the energy code training uh, that Urban Green has developed uh, through NYSERDA funding is excellent. Uh, we rely on them to, to be able to help us um, get that word out to professionals um, all the time. Uh, there's training out there, uh, a lot of it focused on architects and engineers, uh, but there's also training out there for uh, trades persons that NYSERDA has, has developed as well. Uh, I think um, our Build Safe, Live Safe conference, which would have happened, um, I believe, this week, <laughs> um, it, or it would have been last Friday, if, if uh, we were all not... Um, physically distancing from each other. Uh, that's scheduled for uh, September and maybe a virtual conference now. We'll do another energy code training from Department of Buildings um, at that conference, but there are a lot of great resources around you and um, really wonderful information being shared by Urban Green, Passive House, VEX. Uh, um, NYSERDA has other trainings, so there is a lot. Thank you. And I should say there's also a supporting documentation uh, how-to guide on our website, as well as some training modules that Department of Buildings is working right now to upgrade from the 2016 code to the 2020 code. Some of them have already been upgraded to the 2020 code, but not all of them because we have a little bit more work to do, but they are um, on our website all the time and you can put on your pajamas and your bunny slippers and uh, you know watch them to your heart's content. Great, well, Gina, we're coming to the top of our hour. I really wanna thank you for um, spending the time with us today. Thank you for your insights. Thank you for everything you're doing and your team day in and day out to ensure sustainability in our built environment in New York City. We're really appreciative of it. Um, thank you, Yep, thanks. You know, today's program is um, an example of what we do at Urban Green. We take on the biggest challenges with the biggest solutions to make the biggest impact. And we do that in four ways. We convene, we research, we advocate, and we educate. Uh, this is our mission to transform buildings for a sustainable future in New York City and around the world. And I invite you to learn more about what we do. So uh, we've been talking about the energy code. Um, we uh, are specialists in delivering energy code training and we're offering two uh, brand new uh, offerings with the new uh, code that's coming into effect today. First is what's new in the 2020 energy code. This is a 90 minute um, session that is free to your organization. We're doing both public uh, uh, classes where people can sign up on our website. But if you're also interested in having Urban Green deliver this for your team or your office or your clients, we're also doing uh, private uh, or uh, uh, classes as well. And again, those are free to your organization. Uh, feel free to take advantage of those. It's a, it's a great uh, module. And then we have a full day crushing the code uh, class for New York City, which dives into all of the details uh, that Gina mentioned today. Um, it's seven CEUs, um, and both of those are available, as you can see, at our website here. So take advantage uh, of this training opportunity. So thank you for joining us. Uh, we appreciate uh, your time. Gina, thank you again to you. Um, goodbye, goodbye, everybody. We'll see you next time.